The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Well, through this origin series, we've been talking about uh, using as an illustration the origins of various superheroes. Because often the origin of a superhero shows kind of what makes them tick, what guides them, what drives them. And that's actually what we're doing now in this origin series is looking at the things, the passages, the moments that God has used to shape us. And so um, as we're wrapping up this series, I want to remind you or share with you the origin of not just a particular superhero, but of a team of superheroes, a group you may have heard of known as the Avengers. Anyone ever heard of the Avengers? Anybody? Uh, just a few of you. Okay. Um, the Avengers, they are a rather popular movie series. Uh, the, the movie Endgame is the second highest grossing movie globally in the history of movies. The four movies that uh, are about the Avengers, those four movies, just those four of all the Marvel ones, just those four have grossed over $2.6 billion globally. They are an industry of themselves, the Marvel movies and the Avengers movies. Um, incredible, their popularity. But I want to share with you their origins and I want to tell you about the very first comic book that shared and introduced the Avengers. It was this comic book right here, 1963. You'll see on the cover, this was the original group of Avengers. You've got Iron Man um, in the gold suit there. You've got the Hulk. You've got Thor. And then in the middle, you've got Ant-Man and Wasp. Those five were the original Avengers before everyone else joined in. And then the uh, original villain is the guy kind of in the foreground facing them. And it's Loki, who's known in the original comic as the God of Evil. And um, I I gotta be honest, I'm gonna make some of you like diehard Marvel fans angry, okay? Um, But the original comic, when they introduced the Avengers, I mean, it starts really epic, but the end is just kind of so um, underwhelming, okay? Like, it starts out really epic, you know, Loki comes in, and he's using his tremendous power, he's like uh, showing uh, just different visions of himself around, he's he's causing all kinds of trouble, he gets the Hulk in trouble, and so um, he's trying to have revenge on Thor, and there's this crazy battle between Loki and Thor, and they're battling it out, and then Iron Man comes, and he jumps in, but Loki holds off Iron Man, and then the Hulk comes in, and he's fighting them off, and they're like, are they, are the three of them, these incredibly powerful superheroes, can they stop Loki, and and Thor's swinging the hammer, and Iron Man's zooming around, and the Hulk is smashing things, what's going to happen, are they going to win, and then Loki falls through a trap door, he happens to walk along a piece of, um, like flooring, and falls through a trap door, okay? And uh, how did he fall through the trap door? Well, Ant-Man got his ants to go pull a lever that Loki had happened to stop, stand on top of, and apparently with all his power, he couldn't overcome a trap door. Then the swarming ants take him, and they throw him into a metal chamber that was full of radioactive material that up until that point you had no idea was even in the same room. They throw him in there and close the door, and that's the end of Loki in comic uh, one. And then in the remaining three frames, they basically say, hey, that was neat. What if we became a team? And then the next, thing, next frame, they say, what should our name be? Someone said the Avengers. Another person said, I like that. And that's the end, okay? 
pretty lame at the end, all right? I'm glad that it picked up steam and is the epic movie series it is now, but originally it was a little bit lame, okay? And uh, there is one comment in there that's worthy of note um, when they decide to work together. Ant-Man says, look, all of our powers are different, and if we work together with all of our powers, then we will be uh, unbeatable. Like, it's, it's hard to stop us with all of our various powers. And that is inspiring. There's something inspiring about people coming together using their different skills and talents because you, we know that we can accomplish more together than we can alone. Like, that's not an, an unknown thing. Uh, we can overcome many more challenges and many more things together than we can alone. Um, there is one challenge with that, though. It's that it's really challenging to work together. And that's what we know as a human race, is that it's hard to work together. But when we do work together, here's what we find out. Um, and, and most people are like, yeah, I'm on board. Let's, let's work together. I like being a part of something bigger than myself. But the challenge is, and this is what the Avengers would learn, is that as you work together, you have to change some things about yourself. It affects you deep down. So for example, now as the Avengers, um, there would be battles that maybe some of them wouldn't have ordinarily fought, but now they're going to fight because they're a part of something bigger than just themselves. See, that plays into what we're talking about today, is that we would all, we're not opposed to being a part of, of something bigger than ourselves. We know that we can accomplish more with, in partnership with other people than we can alone. And most people are not opposed to that. It's just the cost for that. There are things about ourselves that would have to change in order to do that. And that's often the cost that we're not willing to pay. But at the same time, many of us, we want to use our lives. We want to see our lives uh, be used to do things beyond what we could have imagined. And so there's the tension in there. What really needs to be transformed in us to be a part of something bigger than just us? And that's what this passage is going to talk about. I want to take you to um, a passage that's it's a, particularly, it's a significant passage in our origin story. This is a passage that God has used to shape who we are. And if this is your church family, your church home, this is part then of your story as well. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is a letter written to the church in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is... Um, where Paul, the author of this letter, spent a couple years on one of his missionary journeys. While he was there, it says that entire region of the Roman Empire, that entire region heard the gospel because of the work there in that one city. And what it tells us in the Bible then, through that example, is that when the gospel is let loose in a global city, it can transform that entire region of the globe which is encouraging to us in our context as well. Open with me to Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, let's just pause right there for a second. This section opens up, chapter 4 opens up with the word, therefore. Now, Ephesians is broken up into six chapters. There's three in the beginning, there's three at the end. So this is the hinge going from the first three chapters to the, to the second three. And that word, therefore, is very significant. It's 
just a, a conjunction. It connects two sections of this book. But I want you to notice that that word therefore, specifically as a conjunction, it builds on what was said previously. Paul said a bunch of things and said, therefore, building on all of this, now this. That seems like a minor grammatical detail, but this placement of this word in this book is the difference between what Jesus taught and every other religion in the history of the world. It's that significant. Let me show you what I mean by that. What is Paul building on? Well, in the first three chapters of, F of Ephesians, he teaches about who we are and what God has done for us. And he, he says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, we are dead in our sins. We're dead. In other words, let me put it like this. Every single human being, we all start in the same place. We're physically alive. Our brains are alive. Our minds are alive. Our emotions are alive. Our bodies are alive. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. In fact, maybe even some people are aware of spirituality, interested in spirituality, um, seek out spirituality, but in the end, they're using that for the same purpose, which is just, what's the benefit for my life? And that reflects, even that would then reflect spiritual deadness. It's because fundamentally, what sin is, is not worshiping God, it's worshiping ourselves. It's being on the throne, and that leads to pride and arrogance and selfishness and lacking integrity and, and, and all kinds of things that eventually come back to just being about myself, having myself on the throne. He says, we start spiritually dead. Now, notice what he's saying. He's not saying spiritually sick, but spiritually dead. Not spiritually comatose, spiritually dead. To use another metaphor, the scripture doesn't say we, um, we have spiritual fogginess so we have we our, our spiritual lenses are blurry it says that we're spiritually blind we can't see anything spiritually and it says while we were still sinners while we were dead in our sins it says Christ died for us so while we're still a mess while we're still dead in our sins Jesus comes down from heaven he teaches about the new kingdom that he's bringing and he's crucified on a cross now this is really important. It's not just that he's a martyr that taught some things and then died for it. There's a lot of people who have done that. There's a transaction that happened between God on behalf of humans in that death. There's a transaction that happened on behalf of all of creation that happened in that death. When Jesus died, it was an offering and a sacrifice to pay for sins. It was an offering to God so that the wrath of God could be exhausted on Jesus. And that then is offered to humanity. And so it goes a little further. It says, while we were dead, Christ made us alive. Now I want to ask you, um, if there's a dead body... And someone uh, comes along and resuscitates that body. How much, and that person's alive again, how much did that person who was legally dead, how much, per, how much did that person contribute to their resuscitation? Nothing. They didn't help out at all. That's the imagery for our salvation. Jesus did it. 
He goes on to say, for by grace we are saved through faith. This is later in chapter two. For by grace you are saved through faith and this not of ourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. Here's what that means. There's many people, most people, if you ask them, hey, are you gonna go to heaven? They'd say, yeah, I think I'm gonna go to heaven. Most people would say they think they're going to heaven. Well, why? And most people, if you ask them why, they'd say, well, I mean, because I'm, I'm not a bad person. I mean, I'm pretty good. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty good. And so basically that's saying, oh, we will be saved by our good works. Some would say, well, I'm going to be saved because I'm a Christian. I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up going to church. When I do religious things, I, it's not Buddhism or Hinduism or any other religion. It's Christian. So since I'm a part of the right religion, I'll be saved. That's the label that I would call myself uh, a Christian. It's my heritage. It's what my family was. It's what I am. It's what I, my family is or will be. But it's not by your heritage or your religion that you're saved. It's not by your works. It's by grace through faith. We simply respond in faith and say, God, you saved me through Jesus. Jesus, it was that transaction of your death and then your resurrection. That's what saves me. I take that on faith. It is your grace. It is a free gift. Now you say, wait a minute, that just seems too easy. You're saying that I'm saved from hell and given all of heaven and it's just offered me as a free gift? That just seems too easy. And often when, if we were to have that kind of reaction, it's because there's something we don't believe. We don't believe that God could possibly love us that much. So that's just where Paul goes then in the next chapter, chapter three. He says, oh, I just pray that you could know the love of God, its height, its depth, its length, its breadth. I wish you could just know and comprehend how much God loves you. It's a gift from his love. You take it on faith. You cannot save yourself. It's an act of grace. In fact, maybe even today there's some here or in Cooper City or watching online and you've said, you know what? I've had it wrong this whole time. Because how the world operates is they switch the therefore. See, here's the first three chapters are all about what God did, not what we did for ourselves, what God did for us by his love to save us. Then the next three chapters are linked by this word, therefore. Therefore, God, all that God did, now live a life in light of that. Live a life worthy of that. Basically, let that loose in your life. But so often what people do is they switch that. Almost virtually every other religion says the exact opposite. They start with, do all of these things. Act like this. Love people like this. Do these things. Don't do these things. Do these religious activities. Pray like this. Give like this. Here's all the things you've done and you do. And then once you've done it, therefore, God loves you. But see, that's the beauty of the gospel is God is the first mover, and then we live in light of that. But notice, Ephesians doesn't just have three chapters. It's not just God loves you and now do whatever you want. It's God loves you, and therefore in light of how he saved you through what he did on his death and resurrection. Now let that loose in your life. Live that out. Let that set you free from so many things you're holding on to that are really 
tyrannical in your life. And I want you to see what he says next. Look at this very next verse. This is verse 2 of chapter 4. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I don't know if you notice where this went next. This whole soaring language for three chapters on all that God's done for you. Then it says, therefore live a life and worthy of that, in light of that. And then the first place it goes is how we interact with each other. Doesn't give a whole bunch of things at this point. There's a bunch of other things it's going to say, you know, about how we handle our marriage, how we handle parents, how we handle our, our parenting, how we uh, handle living at work. But the first place it starts is how we live in light of each other. That community is the next place it goes to. And I want you to see the two things it said. Two verbs in here are um, bearing with one another and eager to maintain unity. Um, uh, some of you know my wife Rebecca and I, we have uh, three children. Eight, six, and two. And um, it's just a, a great age. We're having so much fun with them in this age. And my older two, they're, they're getting big. The oldest is like halfway through elementary school already, which is terrifying. Um, but it's still fun because the older two, even the, the six-year-old and the eight-year-old, still come up to me and say, Dad, put me on your shoulders. And so I say, sure, let me just get the chiropractor on the line and then I'll put you on my shoulders, okay? But I still do it because I know that they're not going to ask me to do that that much longer. So I've kind of made a rule to myself. I'm going to put them on my shoulders as much as they ask, as often as I can muster the strength. I mean, even if they're like in 10th grade, okay? Like I'll just hoist them on my shoulders and go straight to the emergency room, okay? Like I'm, I'm, I'm committed, okay? But the little one, the two-year-old, Hope, she'll come up and she'll see the, the big two. She does whatever the big two do. And so she'll say, Dada, shoulders. And so like I'll pick her up. And by the time I'm like to her, you know, if the, the eight-year-old, the six-year-old, now I'm at the two-year-old. I feel like I can like toss her up in the air and then put her on my shoulders. She feels so light. And when I put her on my shoulders, like I, just this past week, I put her on my shoulders after the other two. And I'm like, this is the age they're supposed to be sitting on your shoulders, okay? This feels right. And then something happened that changed my mind. I heard this little noise on my shoulders. Achoo! And I felt on the back of my head, I'm like, that is not hair gel back there, okay? And then I'm like, maybe the eight-year-old and the six-year-old are not as bad, okay? If you are a parent, or you're an aunt and uncle, or you're a grandparent, or even if you babysit um, kids, then um, you, you know what I'm talking about where you're bearing children on your shoulders, but you, you know metaphorically that if you have children in your life, especially you parents, you know you never stop, metaphorically speaking, bearing them up on your shoulders. You feel what they feel. Whether you have babies, kids, teenagers, young adults, maybe they're grown with families of their own, you feel what they feel. You carry their weights, right? Their pain is your pain. Their worries are your worries. Their hurts are your hurts. You feel that. I mean, parents, instinctually, we feel the weight of our children's lives on our shoulders. It's instinctual. We also feel that in our marriages. If you're married, I mean, what is the vow that we made? We said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and health. That's basically a, we're, we're covenanting together to spend our lives bearing each other's burdens. 
And often that, um, for some, I think in our, in our society, there's some that just views um, a marriage as if it's like a, you know, like the ultra Valentine's Day. It's just like this romantic crescendo. I guess that's just the next romantic step, but it's something so much more profound than that. It's beginning an adventure and it's having someone else that is witnessing your life and is covenanted and promised that I will be here shouldering burdens with you for the rest of our lives. It's something absolutely profound that we get to do for each other. And shouldering, no matter this one, one spouse goes through a hard season or another spouse goes through a hard season, maybe it's a season of physical uh, or hurt or maybe it's a season of, of emotional hurt or grief or, or uh, maybe it's something with a career or something with a friend, whatever it is, we bear those burdens together. So we, we see those in our families. But here's what we often do. Outside of bearing our kids' burdens and our families' burdens, Oftentimes we draw the line right there and we say, but anybody else's burden aside from maybe my spouse and my kids, and unfortunately sometimes we even draw the line with them. But typically outside of my spouse and my kids, anyone else who has a burden, that's kind of just imposing on my life. That's an imposition. A friend is going through a hard season for a long time and so often what happens, it's like, look, I, I mean, I had that one phone call with you. I, I, don't, I just can't keep doing this over and over and over. And, and then without realizing, it's like, you know, that friend is not serving my needs anymore, so I'm, I'm out. It's that small group. Well, that one person's going through a difficult season in their small group. And, you know, it's not, it's not why I go to small group. I go because of what I want to get out of it. But this person's going through a hard time. It just seems like for the last couple weeks, it's been all about them. I just I can't do that. And oftentimes, we haven't learned how we're called here, I mean, out of the box, to bear each other's burdens. Why would that be like one of the first outflows of the gospel? Because literally, Jesus, the story of the gospel, left the comfort and glory of heaven, the safety and ease of heaven, entered into our mess, was mocked, lied about, beaten, and then they hoisted onto his shoulders the crossbeam of his cross that he would be nailed to. And he carried that with an, probably in physical shock, probably half blacking out on the way up the mountain, only to be crucified to that cross. What was he doing? He was shouldering the burden of all of our sin. How could we not, in light of that truth, bear each other's burdens. It calls us to bear each other's burdens. And then it says being eager to maintain unity. Now that word maintain there, the second verb, that's an interesting verb there because it means to protect. If you're protecting something, then, you're, then that means that that object is something you already possess. If you're protecting a treasure, that means you've already found it. He's not saying go discover unity, go find out unity, go work out unity, go forge unity, go make unity happen. He's saying to the church, 
He's saying, protect the unity that I have purchased for you. In fact, John 17, the night when Jesus was betrayed, moments before he's arrested and beaten and tortured and killed, um, the moments before that, he's in the garden and he's praying. He says, Father, this is what was on his mind. Father, make them one as you and I are one. And then he purchased our oneness on the cross. He says the church is one and that unity is something we just have to protect. But man, if you look around in our society, boy, there's not a lot of great examples just around in our culture right now. Unity is hard to come by. I mean, it's one of the most disunified seasons of our society um, in recent memory. Why is that? Well, there are three things this passage says that it takes to forge unity. And I want you to see these three things. If you have them, you're on a path to humility, to, uh, to unity. If you don't have them, on a path to division. What are these three things? He says, humility, gentleness, and patience. He says, with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, do those two things. What does that mean? What's humility? Humility is putting someone else before me. Humility is the realization that it's not all about me. Humility is the self-awareness that I'm, I, it's not all about conforming everybody and everything around me to my preferences. Why would that be an outflow of the gospel? Because the one who it is all about, Jesus Christ, set all of that aside to serve us through his, his life and death and resurrection. He came to serve us. So if the one that I'm rightfully supposed to serve, he modeled that. The one who didn't have to serve, the one whose name is above every name, if he served, then of course I'll follow in his footsteps and serve. See, what the gospel does is it dislodges me of being on the throne of my own life and puts Jesus, it puts God rightfully on the throne of my life. See, humility is saying it's, it's not about me. It's first and foremost about the Lord. And then secondly, I'm going to put others, make others uh, more important than myself. I'm going to put others before me. I'm going to consider their needs and not just my own. Humility, what is it? It is surrendering. It's a surrender of self. It's a surrendering of my preferences. Putting those before God. He says pursue humility. He says pursue, he says we're to have gentleness. Um, I think maybe in our society, we have a little bit of trouble with gentleness right now. And I think part of the problem is there's a confusion about how truth and gentleness uh, can work together because there's some that believe to speak the truth means to say it in a way that belittles the person who doesn't believe in that truth. You can believe in the truth. There's only one truth. It's the truth that God sets. And you can believe truth but, and later in Ephesians, it's not saying surrender truth. It's saying speak the truth in love. It tells us how to do it. Speaking the truth and holding to the truth is one thing. How we communicate it, that's something different. And scripture over and over, starting in Proverbs, it, t- it warns us about the foolishness of brash words and harsh words and rude words and belittling people with words. It says that just stirs up more strife, but a soft answer, a gentle word is wisdom. It, it softens the moment. It's saying, man, speak the truth, but do it with gentleness. We can always have gentleness, but what are we surrendering when we, when we speak with gentleness, we're surrendering our emotions. Because, man, it would feel so good 
sometimes to just lay into that person, to set them straight, to use the words and the tone and the volume that I want to do. That would help me blow off some steam, man. That would help me really vent. I'd really feel a whole lot better. But we, we surrender our emotions to use a gentle tone. He says use humility. He says use gentleness. He says use patience. See, patience is surrendering. Patience is surrendering my own timing. I want it, and I want it now, and I'm tired of waiting on this person or these people to get it together. I want it right now. No, he's saying have humility, have gentleness, have patience. See, all of this is an eagerness to maintain unity. Now, there's a tension here because there are those that take this call to unity, and that becomes the most important part of their entire belief system. And so they then subordinate everything else to unity. Everything else is less important than us being unified and all getting along. Many years ago, um, it was early on in our church, it was like 2007, 2008, sometime around there, there was a couple. And they were seasoned in their life. They had adult kids and they, uh, they waited for me afterwards and they said, hey, pastor, we'd like to invite you to this prayer gathering. I said, oh, okay, yeah, tell me more about it. And they said, well, here's an invitation. You can read it when you, you um, get back to your office or back home, and, and I would love to invite you to that. So I said, okay, great. So I took the invitation, I got home, and I start reading it, and it's, they're part of a, an organization, a church. It says the Unification Church. So I started reading through it, and the prayer gathering they're inviting me to is um, to an interfaith prayer gathering. So it's not a Christian prayer gathering necessarily. It's interfaith, all different uh, faiths. Which, you know, we'll partner with many different people for work in the city and that there's, there's ways we can partner. But when it comes to a prayer gathering, that is a different situation. I mean, prayer is not just a ritual. You know, prayer is we're communing with Almighty God. There's a being. So if, how do you, an interfaith prayer gathering, who are we praying to? You know, we're, there's not a unity on who we're praying to. So I look and I said, hey, I reached out to them and said, hey, can we get together for, for breakfast? And I said, I'm going to bring one of the other uh, pastors. And so um, they said, okay. And so I show up for breakfast, me and one of the other pastors at our church. And, and uh, the two of them uh, were there. And I didn't realize, but they brought two more leaders from their uh, unification church. And they began to share about how they follow the teachings of their leader, Reverend Sung Young Moon. And I realized I'm actually talking to, these are members of a cult, and they're, they're talking about what they believe and they say, you know, our leader got a revelation that came in our generation that all these religions, they all are legitimate paths to get to heaven. And, and so, you know, different faiths can come together and they all get to heaven. And I said, okay, well, thank you for sharing with me what you believe. Um, here's how, what we believe and how we operate as a church. Um, we believe there's one authority ultimately and it's what God has communicated through his scripture, like through the Bible. The Bible's how we know who Jesus is. The Bible's how we, we know how we're saved. And here's what Jesus says in the Bible. He says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so what we believe is that only Jesus is the only way someone can be saved. And then they said this. They said, well, we have such a big view of God. We believe God is so big that we don't want to confine him to just one little system and one little narrow path to get to heaven. And I remember like hearing just how slippery those words sound. I mean, they sound good. I want a big view of God. 
And I said, well, um, what we communicated was, look, what we believe about God is we believe exactly about God as to what God has said about himself. And if this is what God has said about himself, then that's what we believe. And we said, there's only one name under heaven and upon earth by which we can be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. And so they, um, we realized that here was a group, their highest belief was unity. So they're willing to sacrifice other beliefs about the nature of God in order to unify. Okay, we don't want that. But on the other hand, there are um, expressions where it says, look, in order to have unity, you've got to believe like everything at every level the same. You've got to believe all of the same doctrine, the same ministry philosophy, same way we do ministry. Like we do worship this way with this type of song at this volume from this decade. And we do this kind of ministry, this kind of ministry. Like if you don't have a quilting ministry at your church, you're probably not actually a church, okay? Because these are all the things you've got to agree with perfectly. And we say, okay, we don't want that either, okay? So how does unity fit with our belief systems? Like where's the line? Like where's the line that we say we can unify around these things. And I'm so grateful that that's exactly where Paul went next in Ephesians 4. I want to read these next couple of verses. This is what he says. These are the things we unify around. Look what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one uh, the, just you recall the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here are those things. What are those things? We're one body. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. You are then part of one body of Christ. We make up the body of Christ those who are, are disciples of Jesus. That means throughout South Florida, there are different expressions, but there is really only one church all across South Florida in our region. That means across the globe, there are many different churches speaking many uh, different languages. And, but, if, but ultimately, if they believe Jesus Christ is Lord and the Savior, if they believe that, then we together are one church, those of us who follow Jesus Christ. We're one church historically, those who follow Jesus Christ. There's only one body. What else does he say? There's one body. There's one spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 says when we put our faith in Jesus, the, the sign of that is the Holy Spirit goes to work inside. How could we be disunified when we have the same Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God inside all of us? We have one Spirit. We have one hope. How could we be disunified if we're, as Christians, all going to spend the same, all of eternity in the same place? That's our hope in heaven. We're spending eternity together, worshiping together. We have one future hope. We have one Lord, Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our King. He's the King of the kingdom we are citizens of. He is one Lord. We have one faith. We know there's only one way to be saved, to put our faith in Jesus Christ. We have one baptism. Historically, the church has had this marker of those who have put their faith in Jesus and are part of that community. It's baptism. And there's one God who is Father and Lord and over all, God the Father. You see the Trinity in there, the Spirit and the, and the Son and the Father all in there. These are the essential things. 
And what the, what the church fathers have said um, really from early on is in the essentials we have unity. In non-essentials we have diversity, but in all things we have charity together. We show love together. These are the things we rally around. The, the unity is something that we are. It's, it's who we are. And here's what's exciting. Unlike with the Avengers who came together and said, hey, what a neat idea. Let's be a team. For the body of Christ, it's something that God himself, who breathed the universe into existence, has brought us together for a purpose. And he says, you're part of something bigger than yourself. Now live in light of that truth and watch what I do through you and through you together. You know, this is part of our origin story. To be transparent with you, there have been um, a couple seasons in our church's history over the last 20 years where we had to fight for unity internally. One was in about the time of 2007 and 2008. There was a, a transition in leadership, and as often as the case in churches, when there's a transition in leadership, there's a, a leadership vacuum, and a lot of times what comes into that space is a lot of different preferences and people fighting for their preferences for what they want. And we had to push through that and fight through that and come around, hey, this space is not a space. The lesson we had to learn this is not a space where we come in with our own personal preferences as the most important thing. Church is a place where we offer something to God. It's really about his preferences. And then we serve each other, putting each other's needs first. We, we surrender our preferences to serve each other and to reach the lost. You know, there was another season where we had to forge unity. 2020. It's a season we had to fight for unity as a church when our, our society was totally fractured and we had to decide, what are we truly about? Are we about the one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one spirit and one God? Or do we add a bunch of other things? One view of culture. One view of politics. One view of... Um, medical practices, like do we add in all these other one things that, that look, these are what's in and that's what's out. No, we had to learn. No, we, we're citizens of a higher kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. And so church, we're, we're, however we walk forward, even in this season as COVID's resurging, however we walk forward, we are a church that he's forged in our past. We are a church that, have, that he's had to teach us. We don't put our own preferences first, but like Jesus, we lay them down to serve one another. We've had to learn about unity internally. We've, and we've also learned the power of unity externally. Do you know the only reason that our church is in existence is that 20 years ago, five different churches gave of their time and their finances and their space to support a, a new church plant out here in Southwest Broward. Those five churches would gain nothing back in return. They would only lose. They would give money, give space, and give people. They would only lose. But they caught a vision that there's such a thing as a big C church. 
after those five churches, uh, other churches came along the way. I was recently reminded of um, the impact another church in our region by the name of Christ the Rock played in our history of many years ago. Uh, man, almost um, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I was sitting in the office. We were very small then, still in the cafeteria, and we were things were tight financially, and I got a phone call from one of the pastors at Christ the Rock. We were friends, and, and they were really investing in our church, and, and he said, look, um, we're coming to the end of our budget season, and we have a little money left over in our outreach fund, so we're going to be sending your church um, $20,000. I don't know if that could be you know, useful to you all at this time or not. And so when I came back into consciousness on the other end of the phone, I said, man, I, I, what can I say? Thank you. I can't believe that. And so why? Because they had a vision that there's one, really one church in South Florida. And so now as we're establishing a campus in Cooper City, I called the now pastor of uh, Christ the Rock, uh, Pastor Daryl, a friend of mine, and I said, hey, Pastor Daryl, wanted to give you the news. We're establishing a, a campus in Cooper City, a little ways down the road from you at Cooper City High School, and I just want to let you know, I want you to know, man, we love you, we're for you, we're behind Christ the Rock, you've blessed us so much, and would love to find ways to partner together to reach our city. And he said, man, that's great, God bless you, can I pray for you? And a couple uh, days later, we got a, a bouquet of flowers to uh, our office um, from the staff of Christ the Rock to the staff of City Rev. And they said just simply, we love you. Welcome to the neighborhood. Why? Because they've got a vision. They've got a vision that we're really one. And when we operate like we are, we don't go and discover and invent unity. He's like, I've, I forged you as one. You just have to protect it. We protect who we are. What Jesus said is, the world will know you by your love for one another. May we be a church that is reflecting that love. That's part of the reason why we as a church are involved in Church United and one of the leading churches in a unity movement sweeping through South Florida of churches across denominational lines. What does it mean if God is doing the miracle of bringing churches from different traditions together, unifying to reach South Florida? What does that tell you if the Holy Spirit is breaking down walls that have in some ways never been broken down in our region? What might he be up to in our city that we get to witness in our generation? So let me ask you, how is he call, calling you to be an agent of unity in your sphere. Does that reflect you? Do, you? do you reflect a person who bears one another burdens, bears another's burdens in your sphere, or maintains unity? Do you reflect that? Take inventory, take a second, the Holy Spirit inside of you, let him speak into your life. Do you reflect that in the different spheres of your life? How, how about at home? Do you operate with humility? Gentleness, patience. How about friends? How about at work or in your neighborhood? May we be a people that are breathing these things that create unity into our city and our society. How about online on social media? Do we reflect humility, gentleness, and patience? May our presence be breathing that into our society and may we watch what God does through that work in our midst. And may he keep us a church unified for the sake of the gospel. I want to close with this. I believe that there are some in this room, 
and maybe some watching online as well, that today you need to invert how you view the paradigm. You've got the therefore, but the two sides are in the wrong place. You've always viewed that you're gonna get to heaven because of your religious label or heritage or by being a pretty good person or by going to church or praying. And then if you do those things, therefore, you'll go to heaven. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is while you were a sinner, Christ died for you and rose again. That's the origin story of your faith. It's the victory of an empty tomb. He died for you. Put your faith not in your own, anything about yourself, but in the work that Jesus did. And therefore, out of that work, then live your life in a way that honors him. But start by realizing that it's Jesus that's your savior. You're not your own savior. Jesus is your savior. Surrender to him today. I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If today um, you say, look, I, I think I've, I think I've had it wrong. I, I, I want to experience the love of God. I think all this time I've, I thought it, I was right because of, I thought I was right because of some of the things that I, I believed or thought or did, but it's just Jesus. And I surrender to that now. If that's you, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, make this your moment that you will always remember. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. Just repeat these words after me. Just silently, right there in your heart, he hears you. Just say, Jesus, you are my Savior. I can't save myself. I believe in the work you did to save me for eternity. And in light of that, I give you my life. I want to live for you. Thank you that you saved me. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer, if you're watching online, I want you to go to cityrev.org slash faith. And I want you to go there because we want to follow up with you. I want to send you a Bible. We want to just celebrate with you, let you know the next steps on this journey. So just grab your phone or just click there on the screen, cityrev.org slash faith. If you're here, I want you to grab that Get Connected card and just pull that from the seat back, fill that information out. You can check on the bottom that you put your faith in Jesus. Put that in one of the giving boxes as you leave or give it to the person at guest services. We've got a Bible for you. We want to celebrate that with you. Church, we're going to close with a song that reminds us where our hope is. No matter what society looks like, no matter what's going on, we have a hope that's unmovable. It's in the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus. Let's celebrate that together. Would you stand with me as we sing? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.